Have you finished your personal statement yet? Now's the perfect time to get it professionally reviewed by a medical school HQ expert advisor. We have former directors of admissions, admissions officers, and the like on our small team of amazing people. They have the inside knowledge from reading thousands and thousands and thousands, tens, if not 100,000 personal statements going through the process and setting up the process for their whole committee. They know exactly what medical schools look for and the common red flags that can get your entire application thrown out. Take advantage of our flash sale right now, going through May 6th, up to 6,000 characters reviewed for just $150. That's a $75 discount on our regular price. Go to editmyps.com. Again, that's editmyps.com. The Pre-Med Year, session number 509. Hello, and welcome to The Pre-Med Years, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. Welcome to The Pre-Med Years. Thank you so much for joining me today. I have a great guest, a returning guest on the podcast today. But before we jump in, I want to talk about the end cat minute brought to you by blueprint mcat if you are struggling with figuring out how to best study for the mcat go to blueprintmcat.com sign up for a free account today use their free study planner tool which allows you to plug in the date that you're anticipating to take the mcat what your schedule generally looks like how many hours a week you have what your days off may potentially be from studying or taking full lengths or any of that kind of stuff And let the magic of Blueprint MCAT's study planner tool tell you exactly what you need to do to accomplish your goal of getting everything you need done, done in time to take the MCAT when you want to take it. Too many students make the mistake of just studying content. There's so much more. Use the study planner tool to help you figure out what that so much more is. That's a blueprintmcat.com. All right, let's talk about our guest today, Sabina. She was on the podcast, the Pre-Med Years podcast, back in session 362, several years ago. You can go find her uh, her episode at premedyears.com slash 362, or go find her on Instagram. She is the Curly Med on Instagram, the Curly Med on Instagram. Go give her a follow, let her know you heard about her on the pre-med years podcast go go uh, screenshot this and then post it to your story and tag her all that fun stuff whatever again she's the curly med we're going to talk about what we talked about in the first episode she was on back in session 362 we talked about her getting in to medical school. Now we're talking about her getting through medical school now that she's applying to residencies and what does that look like and the struggles of being a medical student uh, because there are many. Uh, if you liked this episode, let me know. There's a possibility soon, potentially, that we add a med school, med student focused show here on the podcast. And this is kind of a trial run of that because this was very heavily focused on the med student world. So I hope you enjoy. Let's go ahead and jump in and say hello to Sabina. Sabina, welcome back to the pre-med years. How you doing, my friend? Good, good. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be back. 
So last time we chatted, you were a fresh, fresh medical student. And we talked about your journey to medical school, doing your master's, all of that fun stuff, and finally getting in and what that took. And now you're about to, you're in the middle of applying to residencies. So we get to see the rest of that journey and how it's played out. Looking back at being a pre-med and everything you had to do as a pre-med, how much of that journey do you think contributed to success in medical school? Or do you think they're two completely two completely different journeys? I think that's a really great question and something I've actually been reflecting a lot on as I'm navigating this residency trail. Um, for sure, I think just the amount of like grit and hard work and energy that I had to put into even getting into med school in the first place really characterized my journey through med school in that I came in just already so like committed to this career as a doctor. Like I just dedicated so much of my life to this journey and I'd spent three years overcoming all these obstacles to finally land at a school like Pitt. And then, you know, just any time I experienced downs during med school or hardships, I would just think back on all that I've come through and and be like, if I overcame that, I can overcome this. And and now I'm seven months out from graduating. So I definitely think the the pure like work ethic that it took me to get through the pre-med phase really has contributed a lot to my motivation um, and ability to get through med school. What's the hardest thing about med school, do you think, now that you're on this side of it? <laughs> uh, there's so many things to choose from. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's all hard. Uh, I think the hardest thing, honestly, is is being able to prioritize um, just like your personal life and yourself uh, while also accomplishing all that you should and need to accomplish through med school um, and not losing sight of yourself and who you are through that process. I think yeah. that's... That's been really challenging. Why? Why do you think that's challenging? Why Why do you think students get into medical school and go, okay, and there's this huge narrative around being a doctor that, that you come last, that everything else comes. Why is that narrative there? Why do we put ourselves in this situation to fail basically of like, I can't take care of myself. I can't exercise. I can't eat right. I can't sleep. I need to study. I need to, I need to, I need I, why do we do that to ourselves? Yeah, honestly, it's um, I think it's just the culture of medical education. And I could easily get on a soapbox and talk for hours about just the culture of med ed and how it needs to change and how it is changing, fortunately, for the better. Um, but for sure, med students feel the brunt of that as the quote unquote bottom of the food chain in medical education. And we're just thrown a lot of tasks, be they busy work or actually like productive things that we need to do. And on top of that, are expected to do research and volunteer and live a happy, healthy life outside of school. Uh, and it's the first time for a lot of us that we're really experiencing all of those things needing to happen at the same time. And I think that that's why it's, it's very challenging as a student. Um, and then you hear about how in residency, you know, it's difficult to prioritize anything outside of work. Um, and that's a whole conversation, too, about why that is. And um, largely just because of 
um, perpetuated systemic issues that have kind of trickled down over the years and how we overwork residents and don't value them to the extent that I think that we should. But um, like I said, I could get on a soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> get on that soapbox. That's that's what we're here for. That's what podcasts are for. They're just giant soapboxes that uh, people subscribe to and listen to. So you try to, maybe sometimes better than others, prioritize life outside of school. What do you think was the the biggest priority for you as as you were going through uh, through medical school? And did that change at all first year, second year, third year, and now into your fourth year? Mm-hmm. It definitely changed. First year, I really struggled with balancing like my relationships outside of med school with those mm-hmm. that I was fostering inside of med school. So at the time, I was still long distance with my now fiance. Um, And I had all of these friends from grad school and undergrad and family and all of that who weren't with me in Pittsburgh. And it was very difficult for me to balance a social life with new people in med school while figuring out how to absorb the fire hose of information that was being tossed at it at us while upkeeping those other relationships that were really important to me. And so I spent a lot of first year really working on um, finding that time balance in a way that worked out for me. And I think the same was true for second year for the most part. But then once step one rolled around and board exams, it really became clear to me that the shift was to my mental health for prioritizing um, because it just took a huge hit during dedicated and step one, definitely the lowest of lows for me in med school and life in general, um, which I thought was hard to over. I thought that would be hard to beat um, because the low for me before that was when I was told multiple times that I wouldn't get into med school. Um, And so, and that was pretty low. And so then having this step one exam come through and, and be even lower than that. <laughs> like, was a, like, like a train coming through. Let, let's talk about step one. Why Why was that so difficult for you emotionally, physically, whatever? Yeah, all of the above. Um, it, first, I was going through it during COVID. So mm-hmm. we had just finished second year primarily, actually entirely through virtual school on online. Um And during that period of time, I was really just focused on surviving the pandemic and also just mental health wise, you know, not going to stir crazy in in my little apartment. So I studied, I passed all my exams during second year, but they were all open book because they were virtual. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't quite learn the material as well as I feel like one might have if they were not in a COVID time. And that was the case with myself and and many other of my classmates. Um, so when it came time for dedicated, we really took a hit in terms of what we our knowledge base going into it. Yeah. Um, and I hadn't really figured out like a good way to study um, in a manner that was right for a board style exam. Yeah. All of our exams are in house, and so this was the first exposure to that. Um, and I had undiagnosed ADHD at the time which my therapist had pushed me and pushed me to get diagnosed before step one, probably predicting that this would happen. And I was like, I'll just wait until after. Uh, And I definitely should have done it before. But all of that really accumulated into just six weeks of really struggling because I wasn't making any progress. And then being told by the school that I needed to 
delay or extend my study month. And so I did another four weeks and then needing more time. So in total 12 weeks of just really just feeling like I was getting beat up by these practice questions and not seeing like a way for me to pass this exam, let alone score uh, decently. Yeah. I was the last cohort to have this a is score, pre-pass so. fail. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was just the first time I'd really needed to take a hard look and be like, this isn't working. Like what else can I be doing or should I be doing? I, I need a lot of help right now. Yeah. L- looking back, uh, COVID aside, obviously that that's a, a wrench that nobody knew was coming. Uh, what could you have done or, or have you thought about things that you, you should have done differently leading up to that point? I definitely would have pursued a, ADHD diagnosis sooner mm-hmm. um, because that would have allowed me to get accommodations for med school exams and maybe step one exams. They're, they're quite picky with who they give accommodations to. Yeah. Um, but I, I would have reached out for more help from people who I feel like were more similar to me in terms of how they study and learn. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, schools provide you with resources and and tips and panels from students, but a lot of times they pick from the cream of the crop. Um, I think that's the saying. And, and so they're all just people who are just naturally really good at learning. At least that's my experience with those kinds of panels. And once I started chatting with people who I felt like were more at my average learner level, who actually admitted to struggling through med school and who were real humans, I started to, gain more skills that were applicable to me and that helped me, mm-hmm. um, such as switching to just doing practice questions rather than trying to force myself to like flashcards. That changed the game for me tremendously. Um, and stopping going to lecture, which I had never considered because all throughout pre-med, you just go to lecture and you learn it and you move on. Yeah. Um, and so once I had really reached out to people who were more on my level, I found a way that I could move forward with actually absorbing the material. Yeah. That was the biggest mistake that I made in medical school was not doing enough self-reflection and being aware enough of what worked for me. Uh, I've often talked about, I I met my wife in medical school, the the second day of orientation. um, And I because I was pursuing her as a partner, uh, just wanted to be around her all the time. And the way that she learned and studied was by not going to lecture, was by just sitting and reading and taking notes. And that doesn't work for me. And I never really thought about it until I was like, oh, wait a minute. I just didn't do very well on step one because I've been studying the way that my wife studies or my my then uh, girlfriend. And... Like I've now learned, obviously, I've been in the podcast world forever. I listen to audiobooks. I learn very well by listening. And so if I would have been in those lecture halls, listening to the professors, talk about things, being able to ask questions, it would have been a whole different ballgame. And it's one of the reasons I don't like like the, the MCAT subreddit is like, hey, I got a 520. Here's how I did it. And here's how you can do it too. I'm like, no, that's not that's not how this works, right? I'm glad it works for you. And everyone else needs to go figure out what's going to work for them. So right. you finally got there at some point. Uh, you got through it. 
Uh, have you taken step two yet? I have. I took step two in June and it was a much, much, much less painful experience. I'm not yeah. going to say it was entirely painless because it definitely was still yeah. painful, but mentally I was just so much better. Um, my mental, I had tools in my back pocket to, you know, I knew that I needed to go on walks daily. I knew that I needed to continue to work out. Um, and I knew that I, I needed to not stress myself out so much with trying to like achieve what I thought I should be achieving every day while studying for this exam, yeah. but rather just set my own personal small goals to, to work towards. Um, and so that made those three and a half weeks of, of step two dedicated time much easier. Um, and I feel like that exam It's a completely is, different test. It's so different. Yeah. So different. And having just finished all of my rotations or most of them, that definitely was a huge leg up compared to step one. Yeah. That that test and it's been a it's been it's been a hot minute since I took it. <laughs> but that test to me seemed like much more like, oh, I'm here to test how to be a doctor, not right. I'm here to test how much random knowledge I remember. Um, right. And so that that's it, it was like step two. I think I think I scored like 99th percentile on step two, uh, just because number one I needed to because I didn't do <laughs> as well on step one, and so I was trying to show off for for residency applications. And number two is just that material clicks with me so much better because. It, it made sense to me and I wasn't fighting it because I just got mad. I'm like, why am I memorizing all of this random crap? Uh, right. So, yeah, I, I liked exactly. it better. And then step three yeah, is a breeze. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> step, step three, piece of cake. Step three is easy. Easy peasy. <laughs> so, you you go through this, this kind of transformation of learning how to be a different kind of student. And, and you had that kind of determination and resilience that you you built up as a pre-med student and needing to do your master's and being told you're never going to get into med school and all this other stuff. Were, were there times in medical school where, where you were like, maybe I can't do this? Or, or do you think there's enough support and, and people around you of like, I'll, I'll get through it somehow, some way? Um, I think the... Number one time when I felt that was during step one dedicated there, I had the biggest breakdown of my life um, during step one dedicated where I was just like a slobbering, crying mess, just like wailing on my now fiance's lap and literally being like, I have to drop out. Like, I'm not going to pass this exam. I'm not going to become an OB gun. I'm not, you know, all the knots, all the cans. And it was honestly, it was like a big relief. I think that was on like week six of dedicated after really just not improving at all or showing any signs that I would pass this exam. Um, and I did not see a way forward for me. And I had a large identity crisis. Cause yeah. I was like, what am I going to do? This one <laughs> exam is taking me down. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I leaned on her and I leaned on my friends, um, and reached out for help and mm -hmm. overcame that and, you know, worked through the literal trauma of that exam, <laughs> um, over the years. And I, you know, I've been a lot better since, since preclinical years. Um, everyone talks about how clinical is much better and I agree oh, it's amazing. wholeheartedly. Yeah. Um, but that definitely was the one and hopefully only time that I've really felt like I couldn't do. Yeah. Have you ever had to reach out to the administration for like, hey, I'm really struggling here. What what can you do for me? 
Yeah, during um, preclinical years, I struggled, especially towards like the end of first year when things start really, um, you know, gearing up. And I reached out to see if there were any tips or resources for people who study a little differently than than those who um, thrive on lectures or with flashcards. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was connected to some students who, like those ones I was mentioning earlier, who study more similarly to me, and that was very helpful. Um, and during step one, honestly, I found most of my help not through administration at the school, but through um, my peers, either at my school or at different schools um, and through social media, which I'm forever thankful for Mm -hmm. because I met two wonderful human beings who um, were actually like step one coaches and they coached for free, like minority students. And so they just took me under their wing for the last three or four weeks of my step one time. And I did a complete 180 because of them. Um, Wow. And so, and I found them through social media. So I'm just so grateful for that because I don't know I would have done it without them. That's amazing. That's awesome. So you, it sounds like you were on the OB-GYN train early on. You're still on the OB-GYN train for your applications. Were there any, as you were going through your clinical rotations, anything that was like, oh, maybe this is interesting? Mm-hmm. General surgery. Mm. Um, I I came in knowing OB-GYN for many reasons. And the only thing I was hesitant about was I had never been in an operating room before med school. Um, and the first time I was in an operating room was on my ENT, ear, nose and throat rotation. And it was like a thyroidectomy. And I had no idea how to scrub it. And somebody taught me and I was just kind of thrown into retracting the the famed role of a med student in the OR. Um, And it was even though I was just standing there retracting, it was an incredible experience. And I just wanted more of the OR. Uh, And so I did my general surgery rotation and I loved every second of it, even though the hours were trash. I just wanted to keep being in the OR. Time flew by and I was just so happy there. To the point where I was like, am I going to do this instead of OB-GYN? <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I did my OB-GYN rotation, which has both um, surgery and clinical experiences. And I was like, oh, this is still for me for sure, because I still get that kind of pr- pseudo primary care experience mm-hmm. and the diversity of procedures and care while having time in the OR. Yeah. Looking back preclinical years, you talked about kind of the the struggle of self-care. But it seems like to me, self-care, once you you realize the importance of it, would be easier during preclinical years because the schedule is kind of your own. You have to learn all of the material, but you can kind of figure out where that fits in. Whereas in clinical rotations, you got to show up to pre-round and then round and you're there until the resident says you can leave. Uh, how did you find time for all of the self-care during that time? Or was, was that, did you find much harder? I found it easier actually, Mm -hmm. because I prioritized it so much first. And I didn't feel guilty about prioritizing it versus in first and second year, I felt so much pressure to be studying that when I wasn't studying and I was trying to take care of myself, I felt a lot of guilt and shame for being lazy or, you know, a slacker or whatever other 
thing people call people who don't study 24 <laughs> seven or you call um, yourself. Yeah. Or I call myself. Yes. Right. But in third year, I really was like, I'm going into this and I'm going to survive it such that I come out on the other side with the skills that I need to graduate, but not being burnt out. Yeah. Um, and that was my number one priority. And so I just was more confident with taking the time off after work to come home, watch TV with my partner and cat, eat dinner, maybe do some questions, maybe not, and being okay with that. So so let me let me see if I can translate what you just said there. The the ability to graduate and and not much more however you said that to me basically says you looked at yourself and you're like there's no reason for me to try to be the best student at this school. I just, I need to survive. I need to graduate and, and obviously do as well as I can personally to try to get into the residency that I, that I want. It, was there a mindset shift you think of like, why am I trying to be a top 1% student when I don't have to be? Yeah, exactly. And I realized after step one, honestly, that, the pressure to be the best in med school is um, largely, or rather the pressure comes from doing really well on exams. And that's just not something I've ever been great at. And I really had to come to terms with that after preclinical years. And I was absolutely okay with that. And I took a hard look at myself as third year approached and decided um, I, the kind of doctor that I want to be is not one that needs to get 100% on every exam. Yeah. I don't need to ace my shelf exams because I know that when I go into clinic or when I go into the OR, I'm going to be like the very best patient advocate, the very best provider for that patient. And their experience with me is going to be light years different than any experience they've had leading up to um you know, encountering me or anybody on my patient care team and that I'm just genuinely like kind and compassionate. And I don't, I care about the exams, obviously, to the point where I need to pass to graduate, but I'm not, it's not my number one priority at all. Um, Yeah. What if someone's going to listen to this, Sabina, and they're going to go, oh, I would never want you as my doctor because you're not, you, you don't care about the knowledge. Yeah, release this after uh, January, (laughs) after (laughs) residency interviews. (laughs) No, I definitely care about the knowledge. That's absolutely not what I'm saying. Um, I just don't, in terms of med school and evaluations, I don't find it necessary for me personally to bend over backwards to absolutely get 100% on an exam because I know that I learn best on the floors. And so not maybe I'm not going to be able to answer your board style question right but if I'm presented <laughs> with a patient in that situation I'll be able to help them and that's what matters to me <laughs> you mean you don't all, all of your patients don't come in a, as a board style question be like right. I am a 65 year old woman presenting with a history of uh dyspareunia blah 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 like um like no that's not how this works yeah. um thank goodness yeah and and, and that's that's the, the take home right is is you realizing that for you and where your strengths lie, your strengths don't lie in taking standardized tests. So why kill yourself 
literally and physically or uh, literally and figuratively um, to do well on a standardized test to to figure out how to retain that information to do well on a standardized test when you will learn the information through repetition through exposure in your rotations in your residency and as an attending I mean that saying saying that you kind of understand that the tests are less important doesn't mean that you don't care about the knowledge. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I found that to be very true on my rotations. I pretty much honor clinically like across the bat, which is what matters to me. And then if you separate out the shelf score, it's not a great shelf score, but I pass all all of my rotations and the evals that I get from my um, residents and attendings are really great. And so that to me speaks to my character and the kind of doctor that I'll be more than an exam that I get on a, uh, or than a score that I get on an exam. Yeah. Were you surprised with, with how much studying is still there and, and tests are still there during your clinical years? No, I went, I went into it knowing that all four years of med school would require pretty much constant studying. Um, I was surprised that I was able to do decently on shelf exams without needing to open a book theoretically or figure or physically um, in that I did UWorld questions mm-hmm. as much as I could to the extent that my mental health could tolerate. But I, again, did not try to do 80 questions a day or however many is recommended. Um, but rather I, I learned best through actual patient interactions, which was a much more fun way to study. So I yeah. enjoyed that part of clinical year. Yeah. So on, t- on top of being a medical student, you also are very involved outside of school with different organizations, with advocacy work. Why, why does that stuff drive you enough to have it be a distraction for medical school. Yeah. um, I, again, going back to just my whys for coming into med school, I knew that I wanted to graduate as a doctor, obviously, but more importantly to me, one who was truly the best advocate for my patients that I could be both in front of them and behind the door or behind the computer advocating for them by sending emails, making phone calls, whatever it needs to happen. And that to me has always been my driving factor um, to the point where I run Medical Student Pride Alliance, which is the LGBTQ student organization. And we do a lot of advocacy um, at the national level for medical schools to improve like education about LGBTQ healthcare so that those patients have improved experiences with their providers. Um, And I've also collaborated on a number of other initiatives for similar things, all with the goal of improving the patient experience. Um, And I just feel like I know that I'll be a great physician when my patients see me, but I want to, as best as I can, influence and impact patient care as a whole wider than just those who I'm seeing on a day-to-day basis. And to me, that's through medical education. Yeah. What do you see your, your future as, uh, obviously as a OBGYN, but, but how do you see yourself continuing to be a, an advocate for the broader community? Definitely through my day-to-day work, but also continuing through my research. Um, Currently, I do a lot of qualitative research, really analyzing 
the experiences that queer patients have, specifically in sexual and reproductive health care fields like OB-GYN, and talking to those patients and using that data and turning them into actionable items at the local and national level is something that I don't at all see myself stopping doing. And in addition, continuing to educate and teach in medical education and academia for sure. So yeah. hopefully a clinician educator someday. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as you're sitting here waiting for your residency interviews to come, talk about the the residency application. What What was that like looking back, trying to compare it to medical school applications? <laughs> it was a completely different, but also not entirely different, which is an oxymoron yeah. um, experience in that, you know, there's a primary application that you submit in September and then you just wait for your interviews, which I'm currently doing. Yeah. And the application is the same. It has the experiences, the essays, the letters of rec, but the expectations are different and it's really that you are selling yourself to those programs but you also are trying to find programs that fit for you because it's a job interview and that was a really interesting mindset to go into residency applications with versus for med school I really felt just all the pressure to just make sure that my application reflected me to the very best because I wanted programs to choose me Mm -hmm. and in this case I, of course, wanted my application to reflect me to the very best, but more so because I wanted to attract programs that would be the best fit for me to train in and less so that I was putting together this like great package with a bow on top so that anybody out there would pick me. Um, And it was really fun to look back on all that I've done throughout med school and put it together um, in the most frustrating application interface in the world but (laughs) other than that it was it was fun to see how much I've done um and it didn't take as long to put together as med school apps so that was nice is is OBGYN participating in the secondary process or no some programs have secondaries I've only received one so I'm very thankful for that um and we had to do like signals, which is a whole new thing where you can select up to 18 programs that you're most interested in. And nobody knows what's going to happen with those signals, but that was the only component of the official secondary process that OB-GYN did. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, well, Sabina, it's, it's great to, to hear more of your story and your your journey through medical school now and not just uh, your first few weeks of medical school like like last time and and um, I, I didn't mention it earlier the the previous episode is premedyears.com slash 362 that was episode 362 where we had you on uh, talking about that journey to medical school and now we're talking about the journey through medical school so uh, any final words of wisdom for a student listening to this uh just on on their journey, having fun. Yeah. um, Keep doing what you're doing. And, you know, I think it's very difficult to stay true to who you are throughout the process of being pre-med and in med school. You'll feel like you're being pulled in all sorts of different directions and told to do all sorts of different things, but really stick to your why, even if it changes and you'll be okay and you'll make it to the end. Um, Yeah. And take care of yourself. Number one, take care of yourself. 
All right, so there you have it. Again, Sabina, the Curly Med on Instagram. Don't forget to check out her prior episode. Episode 362 came out in October of 2019. Go check it out. Premedears.com slash 362. And don't forget to check out Blueprint MCAT over at blueprintmcat.com. Use their free amazing study planner tool today. Have a great week. We'll see you next time here on the Premed Years. This is MedEd Media.